We have started in on a short sermon series. I don't know how short or how long, but uh, at least the sermon series on the Psalms. We have uh, done so because we believe in singing the Psalms so that uh, we do need to understand, to do our best to understand the Psalms so that when we sing them, we can sing them meaningfully, which is to say uh, so that we can sing the Psalms from our minds and truly from our hearts. Last week we looked at Psalm 1 and we noted that Psalm 1 is arguably the first psalm. Uh, That is, Psalm 1 is truly an introductory psalm, even to the full Psalter. However, Psalm 2 is also arguably an introductory psalm, even to the full Psalter. In the very least, there is a connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 is very personal. It says, Blessed is the man. And we could easily paraphrase that. Uh, Blessed is the person, the man or the woman, the, the adult or the child, who makes the word of God his or her delight and who meditates upon God's word day and night. There is a rich blessing in spending much time in God's word. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But Psalm 1 gets even more personal when we consider, as we did last time, that the man of Psalm 1 is finally Christ. In the end, what Psalm 1 says about the man, even the, the blessed man, the description is so clear and so superlative Who can fulfill it? It becomes God's law to us, which means to say it serves to convict us and to teach us our sin and to drive us to Christ, even to a personal relationship to Christ by which we are saved. But while Psalm 1 is so very personal... Addressing the individual believer and calling us into that personal relationship to Christ. Psalm 2 comes along with an explosion. And I I think it really is an explosion when you compare Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Because it not only opens from, or it not only goes from the one to the many, it also goes from the person to the nations. And so Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 become kind of like partners. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 set up the full spectrum of the Christian faith. On one hand, the Christian faith is a personal faith. If you are a Christian, it's because you have a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's hopefully where our children start out. Parents and Sunday school ministries start out simply teaching children about God. And how God sent His Son to be born and and to live in this world, to preach and and teach, to perform signs and wonders, and then to suffer and die on the cross and to rise again from the dead. And the point of such instruction is is to draw our children into that personal relationship with Christ, to have that personal faith in Jesus Christ. But there is much more to be learned. 
Because Jesus is much more than one's personal Lord and Savior. If he would be your Lord, my Lord, my Savior, your Savior, he must be for each of us a personal Lord and Savior in whom we have a personal faith. Did I say that enough times? It needs to be personal. But he is, in the end, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He is Lord of the nations. He is ruler of all the nations of the earth. It's not even that he will one day become ruler of the nations, but even now, even now he is reigning and he is ruling over all nations. That's the message of Psalm 2. And, uh, and we really need to look more into the teaching of God in Psalm 2 and the place to start is to see that both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are indeed about Christ. But that while Psalm 1 is personal, Psalm 2 is worldwide. After Psalm 1, Psalm 2 explodes with these words, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed When we hear the words, his anointed, meaning God's anointed, we must remember that the word Christ is from the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah, and that the word Messiah is the Hebrew word that means anointed. In other words, here, without a doubt, is a direct reference to Christ, the Messiah, the the chosen an anointed one of God. So as we look into Psalm 2 and seek to understand it better in order to sing it better, the first point is the rage of the nations. Verse 1 asks the question, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Verse 1 asks the question, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. And then the next two verses explain what it means by the raging of the nations. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ. So immediately there is a connection to Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, we heard, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And now we hear about that counsel. It's, it's not just the counsel of the wicked, but is also the counsel of the nations against the Lord and against his anointed. And so what we learn is that life in this world is not just about me. That's what our culture would tell us, that it's really just about you. But Psalm 1 comes along and teaches us, if we will hear it, that it's not just about you. It's about you and Jesus, by way of your personal relationship to the man of blessing in in Psalm 1. But then Psalm 2 comes along and teaches us, if we will hear it, that it's not just about you and Jesus. It's about you standing with your Lord against a world that is set against you. Here is one of those times where we might uh, be tempted to say, oh, oh, Please don't put it that way. 
Uh, if we want our children to take up faith in Christ, if, if we want to attract new members to our church, uh, why speak of the Christian faith in such dire language? But this is the teaching of God's Word. The nations are raging, not just against God, but against His Christ. The kings of earth set themselves and take counsel together against Christ. We always want to make the presence of sin in the world a small thing. On the simplest level, we, we want to think of sin as making mistakes. And we might be willing to admit that these mistakes can be costly. Sin can even be devastating or it can even have devastating consequences. So then maybe at the next level, we, we think of sin as people hurting people. Not only people hurting themselves, but people hurting other people, lying, cheating, stealing, violating sexually, physical, assaulting, and so on. But here's the fullness of the matter of sin. The peoples are plotting. Kings are conspiring against God and against his Christ. The word rage is perhaps the key word. The ESV footnote indicates that uh, the translation could also read that the nations noisily assemble. But either way, it's a, it's a matter of anger and a matter of boasting and a matter of trash talk, as we, as we say in our own day. And this is the essence of sin in the world. Whether it's someone stealing or fornicating or committing adultery or cursing or, or lying, the essence of sin in whatever form it comes is to say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And it says their bonds and their cords because it refers to the Lord and His anointed, to God and His Christ. And it refers to their bonds and their cords because people know. They really do know that they are under the authority of God and of Christ. Here we need to draw in Psalm 19 again to hear that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above His handiwork. We need to remember the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 that people really do know. They know that there is a God and that He rules this world in holiness and in justice. And there is the constant threat to them of His judgment. So that sin really is the matter of trying to burst the bonds of God and cast away the cords even of Christ's rule over this world. We tend so much to belittle sin, to, to think of it simply as being naughty or as how we hurt ourselves. Maybe we allow for how sin hurts others. But the reality of sin, even the essence of sin, is not that we even hurt God, but that we rebel against God and sin, not so much against ourselves and others, as much as we sin against God. Again, this is why David writes in Psalm 51, against you, he prays to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What had David done? He committed adultery. He took advantage of Bathsheba. He murdered Bathsheba's 
husband Uriah. And yet his confession of sin to God was this against you. You only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. Sin is hurtful. But ultimately, sin is rebellion against God. As the sinner seeks to cast away the cords of God and to do what the sinner wants to do regardless. But next we hear of the laughter of God. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It really is, I think, a, a striking image, the idea of God laughing. And the text makes it clear that He is not, he is not, uh, not laughing in some humorous way. God laughs in derision. He laughs because he is unperturbed. He is not troubled or bothered by the rebellion of sinners, even when the sinners are the kings and the rulers of the earth. In other words, even when it's the most powerful among mankind, it only brings God to laughter because of the utter weakness of man. Remember what mankind is. People are merely creatures. They were created by God, and they are daily supported by God, even as they rebel against Him. So one analogy, I think, I think I've used it before, but one analogy is the elephant and the ant. What does the elephant do when, when one day he looks down and sees an ant shaking his fist at him? The elephant smiles. And his smile breaks into laughter, perhaps, as the ant continues to shake his fist and begins to shout at the elephant. But even that analogy falls short. First of all, because an ant is probably even too small for the elephant, uh, the ant is even too, is probably too small for the elephant even to see. But God sees all. Second of all, because the ant is not dependent upon the elephant. So there really is no analogy, not that one or any other, that, that really fits perfectly. Because, you see, there really is no relationship between creatures that can represent the relationship between God and man. And so that takes things back to the first line, the opening question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It is a statement uh, that the nations do indeed rage and the peoples do indeed plot against God. But it's a statement in the form of a question. Why do they do this? And, and why do they do this, given that it's done in such vanity? Again, the closest thing is the ant shaking his fist at the elephant. And the answer given even begins within the question itself, as it says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The rebellion of sin is pointless. Even more, it's, it's absolute foolishness. First of all, because of the size difference, we might say, between God and man. God is omnipotent. He, he has all power. In fact, God is in such complete possession of all power that, uh, 
that even mankind's power is only that power given to them by God. Think about that. There is no power at work in this world that is not God's power. The power of mankind, the, whether it's physical or intellectual, the power of the earthquake, the power of the wind, the power of the internal combustion engine. All power belongs to God, and He, and he portions it out. He, he portioned it out at creation. The sun, He gave power to rule the day. The moon, He gave power to rule the night. Uh, he gave one power to the sea, but another power to the land, so that the sea might be limited in its power and not overcome the land. And he also gave power to mankind, even creating us in his own image, giving us both physical and intellectual power. But it's his power. And how does mankind use God's power? The sun and moon obey. The sea and land do what God created them to do. But mankind uses It's power to rebel against God, using the power given by God to shake a fist at God. But if God were threatened by mankind's rebellion at all, he would only need to remove the power that he has given to mankind. We tend to think of God's omnipotence as his ability to do all things, but we need to see that God does do all things so that not only in him do we or or so that only in him do we live and move and have our being that's what the apostle paul preached in Acts 17 when he said the god who made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as if as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What else should we expect God to do but laugh when mankind rebels against him? And I think we need to remember this even as we sin. We often sin. We feel conviction for sin. And then we think that God must be so disappointed in me. He must be fuming at me. He must be in a rage at me. But is is it possible that even, even in the conviction of our sin, we want to have some control over God? Sin itself is rebellion, wanting to throw off God's law and do whatever we want. But is it possible that even in the conviction of our sin, even as we uh, grieve and and sorrow for our sin, yet we, we think that our sin can manipulate God? Think of a child's disobedience. It might be simply to manipulate the emotions of the parent. Ah, look how I can determine the emotions and the actions of my mother. A classroom full of children might even conspire to, to disobey and keep the teacher from teaching. Sin is a wily thing, a clever thing within us. 
So it's important to remember that God laughs at rebellion. Sinners do not control God in any way by their rebellion. Instead, he laughs. But this is not to say that God is not angry at sin. It's just that he is not forced into anger by the sin of mankind. Verse 5 follows up to clarify, yes, he laughs, he even laughs in derision, but he will also speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God is not surprised by sin. He is not disappointed by sin as if he had hoped for so much more and, and now what? But neither does he look the other way. Neither is he helpless to deliver justice for the gross ingratitude of sinners. As mankind uses God's power to rebel against the God who gives them the power, we will come to know as well the power of his judgment. And yet next is the decree of God. We hear in verse 5 of God's wrath and terror, but what does God say in his wrath and terror? Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here's the first reference to Christ in Psalm 2, in verses uh, 7 through 9. It goes on to spell out the decree of God. The psalmist writes, I will tell of the decree. In other words, I think, hear ye, hear ye. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that we have the connection again to Psalm 1, another prophecy concerning the coming of Christ. And to see this, we have the help of the apostles in uh, the, the apostles as commentators on this on this psalm, Hebrews 1, verse 5, for example, makes it clear that this is referring to Christ. We're not, we're not making this up. Scripture interprets Scripture. This is referring to Christ. In Acts 13, verse 33, Paul is preaching and he proclaims, we, we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul is even connecting this prophecy to the resurrection of Jesus. Not because he wasn't the son before he was raised from the dead, but by his resurrection it was, it was confirmed, it was affirmed, it was declared by his resurrection that Jesus is indeed the divine Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So when we go back to Psalm 2, what we are hearing is God's decree. Uh, but that uh, uh, is not only his decree, but it's the reason for his laughter. The reason why God is unperturbed by the rebellion of mankind is because he has a plan. In other places in Scripture, it makes it clear that it is a plan from eternity, from before the foundations of the earth. 
So just like, just like in Genesis with the story of Joseph, it's not that God is just good at fixing things. It's not that God is good at counter moves and figuring out alternate plans. No, the reason he laughs is because it's all according to his plan. It looks all messed up from our perspective. From our perspective, God does seem to fix things for us. But we need to be careful not to miss this decree. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Even more, God decrees that ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Here we see that Christ is indeed Lord of lords and the King of kings. Even from all eternity, He is Lord of lords and King of kings. But by His resurrection, by His ascension into heaven, it is made all the more clear to us, at least it should be made all the more clear to us, that what God decreed regarding Christ, so He has accomplished in Christ and has accomplished for us even for us as those sinners who have rebelled against Him. We also need to be careful that when we hear God laughing, that we don't misinterpret His laughter only as judgment, only as derision. Yes, He laughs, but He laughs certainly deriding the arrogance and and the weakness of mankind. But He laughs saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He laughs even as he makes his salvation known and foretells the coming of the Savior that he graciously provides. There is the image here of of two armies meeting on the battlefield, shouting back and forth at each other. It's like Goliath on the battlefield shouting his his insults and his threats and his challenges at Israel. But unlike Israel, as they cowered before Goliath, God does not cower. But neither does he, does he, does he just shout back his threats. Uh, oh yeah, well, this and that as well. No, God speaks his decree. A decree that scripture makes clear from all eternity. My Christ will come. My Christ, He will fulfill my will. My Christ will provide salvation. And and here's the thing, that, that the Christ of God would provide salvation even for those who start out shaking their fist at Him. So here's the conclusion. Here are what we might call the peace terms of God. Terms of peace. Peace terms of God. The God who laughs, the God uh, who is unperturbed by the rebellion of man, says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And can we hear what's happening God is actually reaching out to His enemies. 
God is certainly giving fair warning to his enemies, but he is also calling them, calling them to make peace with him and to make peace with him through the Son by way of his Christ. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Lay down your weapons. Admit that you are no match for the Almighty. Understand that Christ is your Lord and He is your King. You may even be a king, but Christ is still your King. So so serve Him with fear and rejoice in Him even as you tremble before Him. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Another warning. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. But but here's the gospel, even for us. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God offers terms of peace, and He offers them to you and to me as well. We too are those who would shake our fist at God, we too are those who would use what God has given us to rebel against Him. We too are those who are so very foolish in sin. And so we too need to hear the warnings. Christ will one day come, and He will break the rebellion of this world with an iron rod, and He will dash all rebels into pieces like shattered pottery. So we must be wise. If we would hear his warning and accept his terms of peace, let us be wise. We must surrender. We must lay down our weapons. We must unclench our fists and hold out our empty hands to receive. Because even as we are rebel sinners, yet... Yet God is the God who gives salvation to rebel sinners. We must serve Christ with fear. And we must rejoice even as we tremble before him. And we must love Christ. Love him as our king. We must love him for all that he is to us. Unto our salvation, we must kiss the Son, even as we lay hold of His promise, the promise of God. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. Let's pray. We thank You, O God, that as we look out at a world that is in rebellion against You, We thank you that as we feel rebellion within us and all too often even act on that that rebellious spirit within us, we thank you that Christ is on his throne and that he rules and reigns even over those who think they are all that. We thank you that Though there is rebellion, and though there will be judgment, 
yet there also is in our day salvation. So grant that each of us would kiss the Son, would love Christ, would bow to Him and receive from Him the fullness of salvation by His rule and His reign over us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.